Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Salam alaikum. I'd like to welcome you all um, to tonight's Sydney Ideas event, Speaking Truth to Power in the Middle East and North Africa. We're honoured to have um, such a distinguished speaker joining us tonight. He has not only witnessed um, but told stories of the very turbulent and transformative socio-political change in the MENA region. From the onset of the US-led invasion of Afghanistan in 2001 through to the onset of the Arab Spring in late 2010, at a time when a new generation of political voices found new outlets for expression through the internet, through new ways of connecting um, and elevating um, for, perhaps not the first time, but a homegrown voice um, to the existing narrative. So through his leadership roles at Al-Sharq Forum, the International Crisis Group, based in Brussels, and the Common Action Forum, he continues his quest to make sense of some of the world's or some of the most pressing issues in regional and international affairs, in unison with a diverse array of minds, of cultures, and of experiences. So tonight, he joins Sydney Ideas for a conversation about the rapidly evolving, excuse me, nature of how we consume news in the very intricate world of uh, political strategy and diplomacy in the Middle East and North Africa. So it's an incredibly relevant conversation to be had in the, back, in the backdrop of our own local contexts and conversations as our guest explores the complexities of identity and of representation in current social, political, and economic domains in the Middle East and in North Africa. Ahlan wa sahlan. Please join me in welcoming Mr. Wada Khamfar. Thank you. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and allow me first to thank the organizers of this magnificent event in this beautiful campus, actually. I've enjoyed a tour in this lovely place, and I found it very inspiring. You know, we journalists suppose not to be the story. And the worst position a journalist or an, a media organization is to find itself the story and to bridge the divide between what is objective and what is subjective. However, in a region like the one I have come from, I always ask myself the following question. Is it really possible for a human being living in that particular situation is to always keep the distance between objectivity and subjectivity, between balance and emotionality, between his personal dream or understanding of what should be the right for his people and his nation, and just narrating events in front of him as they happen. Thinking about my career personally, I found that very difficult although I found it, to a large extent, very necessary. Why necessary? Because in order to understand, you need to look at the story from all angles. And you have to have a lot of patience in accommodating people who you disagree with, but they have the right to express their opinion. And in also moderating the emotions of those who you agree with, but you have the responsibility of questioning their motivation and questioning their narrative. Not always it 
something easy. From my own experience, I often think of someone called Hamid Gul. Now, Hamid Gul is three years old boy. It happened 25 years ago in March 2002 that I was filing a story about refugees in Afghanistan. In the northern part of Kabul, 60 kilometers towards the Salang Passage, which connect the north with the south, I found that tens of families have escaped from Kabul and the surrounding area, trying to reach to northern Afghanistan, where there is supposed, supposedly some stability. And they were blocked because of the snow. The only passage between the north and the, and the south is Salang Passage that was blocked. So they had to camp near the passage in the snow. Now, of course, I did film that with my colleagues, the team that was with me. And actually, we started interviewing mostly women and children. After we finished listening to that, I just took a tour inside the small camp, tents, basic tents, actually. And suddenly, my eyes came upon a baby who looks exactly like my son during that particular age. I had a son who was three years old. I asked him, what's your name? And he said, his name is Hamid Gul. Okay. Hamid Gul had one of the most beautiful faces I have ever seen. One of the most innocent faces I have ever seen. But also, his face had burns. His cheek, they had two colors, very red and very black. Because of the snow, I'm speaking about minus 22 degrees centigrade with almost nothing to sustain his well-being. You will have this red color in his, you know, in his cheek, but next to it black color with black lips because of the burn of the snow that he has been suffering from. It was a very moving story. I remember taking a personal photo with him with his hat, colorful hat that it seems his mother has, has, has waved, for, uh, waved for him. And of course, we reported the story. And I was very emotional that day in the report. I don't think that I was just a journalist who was trying to narrate a story. It was as if I was narrating a story of my child. And since then, 25 years ago, this incident happened. Often I remember, and I wonder to myself, where is he now? Did he survive it or didn't he survive it? Should I have done something at that day or shouldn't I have done something to save this boy or to save his family or to do something about it? This is a very pressing question in the heart of every journalist who covered wars. It's difficult. It's not easy. It's very personal. It is there in Afghanistan that I came across the most beautiful aspects of the human nature and the worst possible aspects of the human nature. I saw the killing, the brutality, sectarianism, and I saw also the kindness and the love and the generosity. It is not far from that particular village that I'm speaking about right now, or small camp, that I stopped in my way back to Kabul, and a poor almost owns nothing 
a human being lives in a house which was destroyed, only snow, all over the house, insisted that we should not leave before he boils tea for us. It was really unbelievable. I'm asking him why, I mean, you know, thank you very much. We are going back to Kabul. We have, he says, no, you are my guests. You have come to visit me. I have to make tea and lunch. It was really difficult for me to accept an invitation of someone who I could see that he has nothing in his house. And I see that he has only one or two children at that time in a village that has been evacuated by the same refugees who I saw just a few kilometers near Selang trying to cross the snow to the other side of peace, uh, from the peaceful side of the city or the country. In fact, he insisted. Because of his insistence and because I know to what extent the Afghanis are a dignified nation, we accepted just for the sake of making respect, showing some respect to him. So he will send his baby, his child, to run. Well, I could imagine him right now in my head running downhill, going somewhere, coming back after a few minutes, while he is boiling the water on some kind of wood. Coming, that baby is coming with a bread, you know, just big bread like this, coming up, you know, this Afghani round bread, coming up the mountain, and then the father has finished boiling the water, all of us sat on the floor, and then he brought the bread and the water and put some leaves, green, green tea leaves, and we had lunch. One of the most amazing moments in my life. He doesn't know us. Maybe he would never see us again. But again, this gentleman insisted that you are my guests and I have to offer you something. One week later, I came back to the same village. I made a point of standing exactly in the same village just to visit this person and to give him something. From Kabul, I brought some vegetables, some fruits, some sugar, and some tea. And I said to him, you know, if you could please send your boy, I have in the car some things we would like to pass to you. I have never seen someone disappointed and sad like that Afghani guy that day. He said, are you try trying to pay, off, to pay back to me because I gave you lunch? I said, no, just because we were shopping and we thought you need something, you know? He said, no. I will never accept this. I gave you hospitality because you are my guest. I do not expect from you to come and to be back. That incident again opened in my mind something else. How could you be a journalist without falling in love with people? With this beautiful and simple basics of human character. In a moment of stress and need, in a moment when the whole world has abandoned you in a small village, just living almost alone in a house that has been destroyed and you don't know if you are going to survive the day or not. And now you are faithful to your tradition and to your culture and to your dignity as a human being. That's amazing. It's really amazing. On the opposite side, you find the other brutality that you could also encounter in many parts of the world. I have seen this in Iraq. I have seen it in Africa. I have seen it in many conflict zones, sectarianism, where people could chop the heads of people and kill them because they differ with them in religion or a tribal belonging or any form. So the human being is very complicated. And to narrate proper journalism is to narrate that aspect of the human being. It's about people. The whole matter of reporting is about people. 
their aspirations, their dreams, their brutality, their love, their kind, kindness, and everything about them. You report stories about the killers, and you report stories about the killed, and you're supposed to fill the gaps and to build the narrative and to put it in context and to introduce it to the public with hope that one day someone will do something to stop the killer from killing and to give those who have been marginalized, those who have been destroyed, justice, to give them justice. This is what I perceive journalism is all about. I don't see journalism as a, a robotic act, just by bringing an opinion and the other opinion, giving equal time and stepping out and say, okay, I have done my job. Yes, that's necessary to do. I agree, it's must. But also there are issues when you would like to convert a story into something suitable for people to consume, you have two choices. Either you narrate it in a way where you create a puzzle, a shallow reporting, where they will never understand exactly what you are trying to tell, but they will understand that there is a complexity, a dark hole, you don't know what to do, you distance yourself from, as the reporting of the news right now regarding the Middle East. Most of us don't want even to think about the Middle East. Why? Because these are fragmented, short, reductionist, you know, uh, reports showed on TV or in newspapers are describing reality in a way that is impossible for a human being living in Australia or wherever, if he is not a specialist, impossible for him to understand anything besides the fact that the Arabs are crazy, killing each other, we don't know what is happening, and I don't think we will never know what's happening. This is not fine journalism. Fine journalism is journalism that puts events in context and add life to it, associated with real things that every human being in the world understand. And all our issues in the world eventually boil down to the fact that every one of us would like to live a good life. None of us would like to suffer or to keep his children suffering. None of us would like to sacrifice his dignity or his stability for you know, any reason, any, any price in the world. Definitely, when there is a conflict, there is right and there is wrong. When there is a conflict, there is depth that could be introduced to the public so they could support what is right and to prevent what is aggressive and what is oppressive. That is important, and I do believe of a cause like that done in balance and with professionalism. One day I stood on top of the university, similar to this one actually, in Mosul, a city in northern Iraq. It was a very grim day in my life. Why? I respect universities, especially in the Middle East. I respect Iraqi universities in particular because they have introduced to the region, you know, the intelligentsia that the region is actually enjoying. The Iraqi universities were sophisticated. The Iraqi universities had history, had culture. This is a country that hosted the most ancient universities in the world. In the age of enlightenment, 1,000 years before Europe actually went through the 17th century age of reason and uh, enlightenment. This is city of symbolism you know, cities of symbolism, ancient ones. And I would stand on the top of that university. I know 
that it hosts one of the most amazing libraries in the Middle East, where hundreds of unique manuscripts are there. And these manuscripts, maybe they do not exist anywhere else in the world. And I look inside the library, I'm going inside there with my camera, and I see thieves, and I see people going inside it, taking whatever they can, and then running out of it. Something drops on the floor, something collapses, something is destroyed, a computer is broken. It's like everyone is looting whatever he could. No one knows what he is looting, but they are just destroying an institution in front of them. What can you do as a journalist? Can you stop them? There is nothing called police. There is nothing called government. There is nothing called governance. It's a total collapse, total anarchy, and you are alone. Only you have your camera. So what can you do? You should just interview the thieves and listen to their opinion, then report it beside someone else's opinion. Of course, you have to do something. Should you maintain your calm and collective personality and just deal with it as a subject of a matter of nature? happening, you have no choice? Of course not. That day on Friday, I remember, I begged the newsroom to allow me to report live from the University of Mosul. I had a small video phone. At that time, it was not sophisticated as it is today, 2003. And they gave me time. I stood on top of the university, and I started really, literally appealing to anyone, anywhere who could listen to us to interfere, to stop this cultural massacre in this university. And I was very emotional. I didn't know to what extent my voice has reached that day. I didn't know then. I know today that wherever I go, even 20 years later, people remind me of that day. And they tell me, we remember when you stood in that day and you appealed to us to do something. And I remember that yes, some people moved out of their houses went out, and they came to the university, and they stopped them this kind of, of looting, and they tried to establish some, some order and to save whatever they could save. So it is not easy to be a journalist. It is for a lot of us, people who are privileged to be born in stable societies. Journalism is a matter of knowledge, maybe, a matter of communication, and to a large extent, information, and maybe even entertainment sometimes. The way that I have seen journalism in that part of the world, it was a matter of life and death. It's a matter of life and death. I will never forget that I had to carry friends and colleagues who were killed in the battle of the field. Or I have to go to their families and children and tell them the story, what has happened to them. It was not easy at all. Why? Because this is it. And I know that these colleagues who were killed, they didn't go there because they have a nice salary or they go there because they would like to be famous. I know that they have went there because they had a mission to tell the world. And they have really sacrificed for the sake of others knowing. So journalism is a matter of life and death. And for many people, not to be informed properly means that they could face death around the corner. They don't know. You have to tell them. You have to, you cannot afford but to be decent, and you cannot afford but to have integrity in reporting the news. That always puts us in direct conflict with powers. Because power, 
would never allow you to continue that. Once the truth is out, it means the powerful is going to suffer. It means the consensus amongst nations and among people and the power of public opinion will defy the tyranny and authoritarian regimes that have created such a mess and created conditions that are impossible for humans to encounter without revolting or without doing something about it. It was always a continuous battle of speaking truth to the public, angering power, getting again you know, another circle of pressure and sometimes go to jail and sometimes expelled and sometimes marginalized and sometimes accused of any kind of accusation you could imagine just to put you off air or to put you off your pen or your camera. It is something that we have encountered and I think our colleagues until today across the Arab world, across the Middle East are still encountering. A lot of them are still falling as warriors although they have never meant to go and fight. They are not fighters. They carry, they carry cameras. But I know that most of those who are fighting the forces of democracy, they view camera much dangerous, much in a dangerous way, more than they view actually weapons, because they understand the power of the camera or understand the power of the writers and those who are expressed truly, truly the story as it is. So, the Middle East is an area which could be understood. It is not really very complicated. There are basic matters that we share with everyone in the world. We have nations that have been oppressed, suppressed. We have authoritarian regimes. We have dictators who have, for at least 100 years now, have been inheriting the ownership of land and people, generation after generation, without allowing anyone to breathe. That's simple. You will revolt. You have to revolt. Because you have two choices as a human being. When you are confronted with perpetual oppression, either to commit suicide or to revolt. If you give up on a dream of peaceful change, that's the only thing you could do. You can't live with oppression your entire life. And if you do, your children will not. And if they do, their grandchildren will not. So this is what happened to us, generation after generation. We lost hope that things could change peacefully. Because every peaceful meal was actually tried, but unfortunately, every peaceful meal failed. Why? Because of two reasons. One, that this illegitimate entities that we call governments, who have never been voted to power by anyone, besides the fact that they have military control or they have coups or they have people supporting them, have actually understood that their presence in power is not related to their legitimacy or to any democratic mean or to any kind of freedom, but to the way that they could run a police state with massive jails and the strong intelligence agencies. Simple. That is the ethics of governance in the Middle East. On the other hand, as well, the international society, which has been introducing to us the most beautiful philosophy of liberalism and ideals of freedom and equality and justice and the human rights, supported them. Supported them to an extent that also we did not only lose hope in changing the regimes that I'm telling you about, but also we lost hope in convincing the world 
that we have a just case. When the Arab Spring 2011 took place in the Arab world, everyone said, wow, what a fantastic, lovely story. We reported this story with pride. It was one of the most beautiful moments in our history, the Arabs. Suddenly, we are not anymore the radical, crazy people who are killing each other without any reason. We are not anymore the nation that has actually produced Al-Qaeda. It is not anymore those who are sectarians who are trying to massacre each other in Iraq and Afghanistan and Lebanon. Suddenly, we became symbols of freedom across the world. At Tahrir Square 2011, when young people who were not driven by specific ideology or a specific political party and by a specific religion, they have stood together, Muslims and the Christians, men and women, young and old, in order to chant for freedom and democracy and dignity. It was a brilliant moment in our history. That was the moment when we thought that Al-Qaeda is dead. That is the moment when we thought a new dawn of enlightenment is going to emerge in the Middle East. We celebrated that, and you did celebrate that with us as well. And a lot of people in the world celebrated that with us. Later on, that dream of continuity was murdered. Nothing more dangerous than a dream of a nation that has been struggling for a century to liberate itself. This final dream, utmost dream, is murdered. When that dream is murdered, you don't know how people are going to react to it. People could react in any way, and they did react. We, in a way or another, went since then in another cycle of violence that has never been seen before. Syria, millions and millions of refugees, and almost a million people murdered. Iraq, which has not seen stability since then. Egypt, which is still struggling to survive Libya, which we don't know. You wake every, every day in the morning, you don't know who is today the prime minister of Libya, which government is ruling which territory. Yemen, which is in a perpetual conflict. I don't know where Yemen is heading. And you know, we went into this kind of a new mood. And then ISIS emerged. Not Al-Qaeda, which we thought 2011 is gone. No. Another brand which thinks that Al-Qaeda is very lenient emerged in order to do things which we have never thought that in our life we will witness as Muslims or Arabs or even humans. So that has happened to us. We see it in front of us, a murdered dream. And guess what? Those who supported us in 2011 and everyone was saying, you see, we were training people on how to speak. We were training people how to appreciate civil society and, you know, this organization and that organization. And the Western society at that time was claiming a lot of credit for the beautiful narrative of the Arab Spring. But later on, until today, I don't remember one politician in the West mentioned the word democracy in the context of the Middle East at all, as if what is happening right now is again a matter of natural events. We have nothing to do with it. You cannot condemn, you cannot interfere. You see, there are points of view. You see, you know, it's controversies. What do you mean? Controversy. You're supposed to preach to us the ideas of liberty and freedom and democracy, and now suddenly, 
that lexicon has disappeared, then we replace it with something called stability. What does that mean? Stability in a presence of such dictatorship and authoritarian regimes means ISIS, basically. Stability means that continuous destruction of our resources and our psychology means something that might endanger the peace in the world. This is what the so-called stability of the Middle East under tyranny means. But of course, as you may know, unfortunately, this is the, the reality that we are dealing with. So speaking truth to power is not only a slogan. You have a price to pay, and it has mechanisms to implement, and it is a narrative to embrace, and a state of mind. And if you don't pay the price for it, you don't speak truth to power. You blend with power. The powers are there to attract you, to allure you, to give you money and wealth and fame, to put you on TV screens and to celebrate you and to sit next to the president, take photo with him. But what does that mean? It means, of course, betrayal to your cause. This is why I view journalism as a cause. I view it as a mission. And I don't think we can afford not to view it but as a cause and as a mission. And I view freedoms as much more important necessity, necessity than anything else. Not only that, sometimes maybe much more merciful to execute a human being rather than to enslave him and to demoralize him and to destroy him from within and to convert the most precious you know, asset of his existence, freedom, converted into you know, absolute subjection and absolute humiliation and marginalization. And unfortunately, we say this. This is why, when we come and talk to you, I know that you appreciate what I'm telling you, simply because since I have landed in Australia, I'm listening to every speaker, starting by acknowledging that we are standing on the land of the First Nation. That's very beautiful to do. Therefore, I would appreciate the fact that you understand what I'm telling you because I, you understand diversity. You understand the cost that oppression you know, could have on people. And I think instead of us acknowledging something later on, we should maybe prevent it to happen before it happens. So we support the people. We support those who stand for justice and freedom, and also we help them to establish something that the whole world is going to enjoy. Now, things are not, of course, totally dark. I have a theory, and always I'm known of it because I think I'm optimistic more than anything else, that crisis is necessary sometimes to introduce to the world or to the public or to the nation, whatever it is, to introduce something in you rearrange its priorities, and you know, launch some kind of self-introspection, and try to find a way forward. The way that I view what's happening in the Middle East at this moment in time is the end of one century kind of vague relationship between state and people. One century now, from 1917, which is the end of the First World War, until this year, 2017, we have gone through phase after phase of illegitimate governments and regimes 
ruling over people who do not like them. And therefore, the concept of legitimacy for the so-called state in the Arab world, in particular in the Middle East by large, is not really established. We don't have a social contract. We don't have a political contract. We don't have consensus on the major aspects of our public sphere. We have never been allowed to negotiate a balance or negotiate some kind of you know, agreement amongst ourselves on how to rule ourselves, because always we have been told how are we going to be ruled and we have to listen and obey the rules that serve the minority and marginalize the majority. So this kind of cycle is about to end for two reasons. Number one, it has proven for 100 years that it does not provide security and prosperity. Full stop. This whole concept of stability versus democracy is absolute nonsense. And it should never be introduced to anyone who has a bit of mind. We have tried that 100 years. We have never reached prosperity or you know, stability because of security only. Second, we have new generation. The new mentality, and always I say this, maybe our generation is the last of its kind. Why? Because the new change, the fast and the quick change happening in the world is not only interfering in the kind of cell phone that we are carrying or the kind of mode of communication that we are using, it is becoming a cognitive process. It's becoming a psychology which is spreading across the world. Our young, our children and our young generation are much better equipped than us not with technology only, but with imagination, with international vision, with connection with the stories across the world. They are not anymore dependent on me or the state or the TV or the radio news to tell them what to believe and how to believe it. No one can have monopoly over their minds because they are really connected and they are building their imagination, and they will make the comparisons, and they will understand to what extent the scope of freedom could bring to them, because they see it everywhere else in the world. So we are going to lose control over this generation. It means powers, governments, will never be able anymore to do this unless physically eliminate them. How much they can eliminate and how many can put in jail? We have now tens of thousands across the Arab world of young activists in jail. So what? We have millions beside them still going to continue the struggle because remember something. The aging authoritarian dictators do not have, not they do not have imagination. They do not have any form of imagination that could compete or replace or even put forward for their age, not for the age of the young generation. Our guys have imagination. The young people have imagination and they have a strong one. They are much more courageous and they are capable of examining their thoughts. They are much more critical and they could sacrifice when they feel that sacrifice will yield to something positive and something solid. So yes, I do expect that we are at the end of a circle, at the cycle, and we are going to start a new one. It might not be in the shape of the Arab Spring that we saw in 2011, 
but it's going to be a serious change. Because I think the young people who did 2011, Arab Spring, also they are learning from their mistakes. They have never been Polish diplomats. They have never been experienced revolutionary. They have been people who were equipped with a framework of understanding and emotionality and connectivity, and they were able to do something. But that something was not equivalent to the counter-revolutionary experience of running a state or experience of plotting against their enemies. This is why we lost. But that will not be the end of it, simply because those who took over are not neither delivering to us a sustainable you know, economy or sustainable political re uh, reality that could survive. Countries like ours, whatever has been built in 100 years is now destroyed. Our bridges are destroyed, our hospitals are destroyed, our schools, are, our education system is destroyed, our mosques are destroyed, almost everything is destroyed, beside the destruction of the social, and the most painful actually, the social fabric of a society. A society like Syria, which they don't know where they exist now, relatives who are across the world, trapped between, I don't want I mean, to go into that territory, but between this kind of feeling in Europe that is emerging against these people, simple people. These people are not a threat for humanity. They are escaping. They are much better humans because they have experienced something in their hearts and they could really appreciate any help given to them. These are the people who previously, when they were refu refugees, built the modern civilization as we know it, from Australia to Brazil. This is how things go. This is the nature of life. This is how we had industrial revolution. This is how we had ages of, of progressive attitude. And this is how we practiced you know, building communities and states. And, 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 and now, suddenly, these people have been, the threat of these people have been exaggerated in order to fuel extreme nationalistic discourse, which in my opinion, is not only going to be harmful against the refugees of Syria and Iraq and Afghanistan, it's going to be harmful for the stability of these societies itself. Because these societies cannot live with this kind of extreme discourse. In my opinion, it is a matter of time when the public is going to realize to what extent there is danger in eliminating this concept of tolerance with foreigners or with refugees or with this particular group of people or ethnicity or religion and so on. Nothing could protect our societies than having values that all of us revolve around. But once these values become nationalistic in nature, xenophobic in nature, extreme in nature, wherever that happened, in the Islamic world or in Europe or in Latin America, the same. The result of that is going to be actually bleeding from moral reservoir that we have, reaching a moment of sub-identities that will never unite us, but will divide us further. We have seen this. We have gone through sectarianism in the Middle East, and we know how dangerous sectarianism could be, how dangerous extreme nationalism could be. And I think you know that much better than me. The last point that I would like to mention today that while we are building the future of the Middle East, hopefully, in the next 
maybe years to come, I don't know when exactly, but as I told you, we are heading towards that. We expect that the world itself is going to change its attitude towards that region. I, if I am going to be a dreamer, and I would like to be always someone who dreams a little bit, because sometimes dreaming is not a bad thing to do. You know, don't you believe that people of the West will be much happier if the concept of diversity is acknowledged and practiced? Not only in the Middle East, but everywhere else. The concept of tolerance is accepted as a major, a universal concept that every one of us should work for. And the concept of recognition of the other instead of elimination of the other. And the concept of supporting what is right, the public, I mean, not necessarily governments. We, the people, the ordinary people, remember that today you are much more powerful than what we have been 10 and 15 years ago. Each one of us has access to social media, has access to public opinion, has access to forming a discourse and a narrative that could enrich the global debate. We have much better connectivity with the world than what we had before. Before I was locked in my own village, in my own tribe, in my own culture, in my own religion. Now I could be a member of tens of organizations across the world virtually. I could be a member of tens of networks who share the views from Latin America to South Africa to Russia. We can work together and we can develop the sense of global connectivity and universal ethics and values to develop our future. Because whatever happens in the Middle East, like it or not, is going to affect everyone else in the world. There is no way that we can build walls and say, let them kill each other forever. No, it doesn't work like that. What happens in Europe will affect everyone in the world. What happens in North Africa will affect everyone in the world. So it is one, one destiny. And if I say this, and if that is true, it is the most true in any moment in history, given the fact that really today and the next generation are going to see a world which is different from ours. This is why I said we are the last of our kind. We could experience a bit of nationalism, a little bit of religious alliances, a little bit. We could do that. Our children and grandchildren are going to be much more connected and much more different than us. Let us help them and let us embrace their ideals before we are outdated, actually. I, I advise myself, of course, and my colleagues wherever I go, and I tell you here in Australia, and I'm very actually pleased with the amount of tolerance, actually, although maybe there are always voices, but amount of tolerance, amount of recognition of diversity, and amount of interest I have seen in this country regarding the Middle East and regarding the rest of the world. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Hamfar. I think that gives us plenty of food for thought. So we're, we're going to um, move on to the Q&A session, which Zainab will be moderating, and she will also kick-start with a few questions of her own, and then it's, it's sort of open mic to, to the, um, the rest of the audience members. So we'll kick that off. Thank you, Zainab, and thank you, Mr. Hamfar. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Mr. Fatah Hamfar, for your inspiring speech. It's really touching and inspiring. You have said you cannot be a journalist without falling in love with people. You have said during your speech that you consider journalism as a mission. 
Don't you think that you are opening a war now from the traditional news media outlets, from the conventional news values, that you are against the regime of objectivity? I did not say that I'm against the regime of objectivity. Of course, I said I wondered what extent objectivity should prevent us from being biased to shared universal values. In a case of a thief, he is a thief. You cannot be objective in describing what is happening. It is the truth. So sometimes in conflict, in conflict zones, you struggle with that. I know for sure when I was in the newsroom, I mean, I was running a newsroom for eight years in Al Jazeera. I remember one day there was a war in Gaza. And the journalist who was monitoring the feed from the satellites in order to make a report, by accident, he saw his house bombed. And he saw his mother and his sister going out, running from the house, bleeding. Of course, what are you going to do? It's happening. He could see it. When I realized that this is happening, of course, I asked him to go out, to go home. But also, I asked another journalist to come do it. I would have not allowed a journalist like that to do it. He is becoming outside of any parameter of objectivity. So in this case, you need to interfere to balance the, the question. But when it comes to total, you know, with, to, to values that all of us appreciate, like democracy, like human rights, like issues of torture, like issues related to brutality of, of, of groups and, and even governments, I don't think we should be just taking that as, you know, and ordinary, I think we should take a stance and I think we should make our opinion known to the public through our reporting and through the angles of our stories and debates. But when you said we, we should, what do you mean? Do you mean media outlets? Do you mean journalists? And you have said also and during your speech that there is a fine line between subjectivity and objectivity. Correct. Do journalists responsible or are journalists responsible of the media content? Do don't, do, don't you notice, for example, the ownership of the media, the powerful, which you have said many times during the media, it is really up to journalists to change the content of the media? You know, when I say we, I mean, I mean individual journalists, by the way. I don't mean corporations, because I know corporations have different logic. I was running a corporation myself. I was a journalist myself. I know exactly when you are a corporate leader, you have to count a lot of things. You have to count the financial terms, you know, your corporate interest. The political balance as well, because you can't just send people to the field and let them die. Really, you can't. I mean, this is a very difficult situation you find yourself in. So you need always to, to be in the following stance. As a journalist, you are in love, as I said, with democracy and the freedom, and you are doing it. As a manager, or as a leader of a newsroom, or as someone who is sending people out, you need to calculate the risk. You need to balance the interest of sending a crew versus not sending them. And you need also to, to monitor how could you survive in a context of authoritarian regimes that you know in a moment of time they could confiscate your ability to communicate with the world and then, yes, you have done whatever you want to do, but you ended with a black screen. It happened to us. One day we had a black screen. During the Arab Spring, I remember, 
in a moment of time. And that's one of the most amazing moments. Imagine Al Jazeera has been reporting continuously 24 hours in many channels, you know. One day, the government of Egypt decided to block our signal. And they, it seems they had genius kind of, I don't know, they, we never expected that to happen. But all satellites carrying Al Jazeera signal were blocked. We ended basically having only Al Jazeera headquarters seeing the field. It means no one in the Arab world is watching us. It was amazing because what can you do? You have satellites that are blocked and you cannot reach anyone. And in fact, something amazing happened that day. Ordinary small channels, music channels, movie channels, ordinary ch whatever small channels, started picking from the online, our feed, it was through the internet, putting them on the, it is low quality, but they put them on the screens. Suddenly, 22 channels in the Arab world carried our signal. And the audience started turning to these channels to see Al Jazeera feed. And they reconnect. And then the governments were convinced that, you know what, there's no way. And of course, we found a technical way of just finding another satellite above the way that they can jam our signal. It was an American satellite, actually. And immediately, we hired some kind of bandwidth, and we put our channels, and we back to, uh, to operation. But I say, this is the kind of life that we used to live. You need to balance things. You can't just do whatever you like. Mm -hmm. You need to have the constraints and the necessities taken into consideration when you design your uh, organization. Since you have talked about Al Jazeera, and this is my favorite moment, really, because um, my, I'm focusing on Al Jazeera. I'm so critical on it as well. Um, I was, when I was 16 years old, watching Al Jazeera, I was surprised. I said, I want to study journalism because this is what journalism is about. It's about, you know, giving chance and giving freedom to opponents, to human rights activists. And this is what happened in 2011. We have seen the dream. We have seen the Egyptian revolution. But you didn't give all revolutions the same space. You neglected Bahrain's uprising because Bahrain is an ally to Qatar. What's your response to that? No, actually the Bahrain revolution was part of our coverage, daily coverage. The only thing that, in my opinion, this is, in my opinion, that justified, a lot of people saw it as a different thing. Bahrain compared in a strategic value and, and with, with the weight of events, with three simultaneous revolutions at the same moment. One in Egypt, which has 90 million of population, and we know how much complicated the situation in Egypt was. One in Libya, and one in Yemen, and one in Bahrain. So we had to really share. I think Egypt was by far much more covered than Libya. Egypt was by far much more covered than Yemen during that period, and by far three of them were covered more than Bahrain. That's true. But in context of the editorial decision rather than a political decision, it was not the Qatari government who told us, because you should remember the Qatari government didn't have the worst relationship with Gaddafi. When we were banned from, from Libya, Qatar also had working relationship with, with the government of Gaddafi. There was, later on it became very bad because of Al Jazeera. Qatar had good relationship with Hafid al-Assad, with Bashar al-Assad. And they had really alliance in a way or another, if you remember during that period. But it deteriorated because of Al Jazeera, not because we actually led most of the relationship with Qatar as a government into a bad situation, even with Bahrain. In Bahrain in particular, we have been banned, of course, and our correspondent was kicked out 
and a lot of journalists really were not allowed. Whenever you, not only journalists, I remember employees of Al Jazeera, ordinary employees of HR and finance, if they carry in their passport a visa, which carries Al Jazeera, you know, uh, as a workplace, they will be banned from entering the country. So we also had a very difficult time in the rest of the Arab world and in Bahrain in accessing the story. And we had to access it either through phone at that time or through opposition leaders telling us stories. And that, unfortunately, was not a comfortable situation that we dealt with. You have, you have mentioned Syria, and you said that the Qatar's relationship with Al-Assad regime has changed or deteriorated because of Al Jazeera coverage. But the other narrative is the other way around. There are some literature, some media literature, suggests that Sheikh Hamad bin Thani, the Qatar's, uh, the, the Qatar's emir, tried to convince Al-Assad to do some reforms, Correct. but when these negotiations fails, then <laughs> they told the Jazeera to start its coverage. What's your response? As a witness of that history mm. and the decision maker in Al Jazeera, I can officially tell you that this is not the truth. Mm. Al Jazeera actually had independent coverage of Syria, and that independent coverage of Syria led to a further deterioration of relationship between the Amir and Bashar al-Assad and led to almost a state of total, you know, collapse. It was Al Jazeera. It was, I mean, okay, the Qataris could have suggested to Bashar al-Assad to make reforms and they refused, so what? Qatar itself was not a democracy, at the, and still, I mean, so it's not an issue of democratic aspirations of Qatar to spread it in Syria. But I think Al Jazeera was a heavy, it had heavy cost on the foreign policy of Qatar. I'm not going to argue a lot about Al Jazeera. Let's talk about sectarianism. You have mentioned the sectarianism and in the, in the region. Don't you think the Arab media is helping to increase this sectarianism? Unfortunately, I would say we resisted during the time when I was in Jazeera the usage of sectarian words in our reporting. So for example, we know that Shia and Sunnah are fighting in Iraq. We insisted continuously not using or describing the militias from the Shia side with, for example, militias from the Sunni side as Sunni or Shia. Just we'll call them by name, the militia of so-and-so, without saying the Shia or the Sunnah or the Arabs or the Kurds or the Alawites and the Sunnis or the Christians and the Muslims. It was never actually our, you know, it was a policy not to do so. Later on, things went beyond that. It has become, a, it went, I, this is why I told you always, I tell you, Al Jazeera is part of the Arab reality. Not only Al Jazeera, every Arab outlet, in fact, is part of the Arab reality. When the sectarian, when sectarianism went out of control completely, unfortunately, media started to be used as a tool. Now we have tens of channels in the Arab world from, you know, Shia channels in Iraq, for example, and we have Sunni channels from the other side, just fighting the battle of Shia Sunnah, not political battle. I personally, my view on the whole matter of Shia Sunnah, for example, or sectarianism is political. It has nothing to do with religion. Of course. It has existed. I was a bureau chief of Baghdad during the war and after the war. We had 102 employees. I remember that figure because we had to give their names to the occupation forces of the Americans when they came into Baghdad. You know, I never, at that time, known, I did not know who was, who was Shia and who was Sunnah. I didn't know. I don't know. My secretary was a Shia. Later on, I discovered. I didn't know that he was a Shia. I didn't even bother to ask 
or to know who is Shia and who is Sunnah. When Bremer, who was the American governor of Iraq, decided that he is going to establish elections or to call for elections based on sectarian basis, calling Sunnis to elect Sunni members of the council and Shia to elect Shia members of the council, during that week, I started sensing tension in the office, as if everyone started to discover his identity. I am a Shia, he is a Sunnah, I will vote for him, I will vote for me. And then we started this escalation. I blame the Americans for the sectarian war in Iraq. And I think, and I personally said that to Paul Bremer when I, I was the first journalist to interview him. And I asked him about his plan, and he mentioned that to me. It was through Al Jazeera that the world knew that there is a plan like that. I told him, Mr. Bremer, this is a recipe of continuous civil war. You do not touch the concept of Shia Sunnah in Iraq. This is something that no one should go close to it if you would like to achieve any kind of stability in the country. But he laughed and he said, no, we have been studying this, we have decided on it. Later on, when he wrote his book, we discovered that he just spent 10 days before he came to Iraq in order to read a little bit, maybe in Wikipedia, wherever it is, about what Iraq is. And this is how they defined the policy for Iraq. And this is why Iraq, after that, went down great. Wonderful. You have just the last question and then we will open the floor for questions from the audience. Uh, you have talked about people giving context, explaining the background of the conflicts without just giving the opinion and the other opinion, without just giving the, the, the coverage to both sides of the conflict, but all sides. To me, this sounds like peace journalism. But don't you think that in order to apply peace journalism, we have to democratize the media first? When I speak about context, I don't speak about telling how fantastic everything is. I'm telling you that any event in the world could become an accurate lie. Accurate data, by the way, sometimes I view it as accurate lies. It is data, but it is framed in a sense that gives the opposite meaning of it. You need context, you need the framework of analysis to understand events and to convert narrating events into knowledge. And this is amazing, this is good. This is I important, don't... this is why I am calling for the following. Journalists should be much better equipped with historical knowledge mm -hmm. and social knowledge and analytical knowledge than any moment in history in dealing with conflict zones, especially in the rise of social, social journalism or social uh, uh, communication that is actually flooding people's mind with you know, very shallow understanding of reality. You need journalists to step up their capabilities and to become actually specialists. This is why I always say we need our newsrooms to become think tanks and our journalists to become researchers and students of history in order to analyze and to understand. And we need also our institutions to concentrate on two major trends of journalism, which I am afraid that they are endangered right now. Field journalism and investigative journalism. Field journalism where you send correspondence to the place instead of sitting in front of a computer accessing Reuters and ABN and just dealing with stories by distance. You need to send people there to see for themselves, especially when they could go. And if they can't, you need to train people from the country or from the place to report the news in, 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 in at least a basic manner that could be uh, enriching and the experience transferred to the public and investigative journalism. 
it is sacrificed now because of the lack of funds. Most of our corporations are cutting True. on field journalism and investigative journalism because they are expensive. And this is why we are suffering as audience. We don't get the best of journalism. We are getting just a quick immediacy, urgency news that put you in a mood of wanting to distance yourself from the story rather than to comprehend it and understand it. Wonderful. Thank you so much for your insightful take. I'll, I'll just open the floor for audience if you have any questions. Yes, please. You mentioned Paul Brenner. And do you think that he's a textbook case of the arrogance of ignorance? If you put it like that, yes, I would agree with you. I will never criticize that kind of discussion. <laughs> uh, yes, I would agree that Mr. Bremer, he made major mistakes, and he actually, unfortunately, was never held accountable for it. In one year, he put Iraq back in, you know, dark ages. I don't blame him personally only. I blame the whole administration that enabled him to do what he has done. Most of the laws and regulations and acts that he did in Iraq actually led to the current reality that we are in, including a lot of destruction for the heritage of the country. And I was a witness on the museum, the most beautiful museum in the world, the Museum of Baghdad, that was sacked and destroyed and stolen, and a lot of pieces found its way to Europe and to many other locations. You speak a lot about how the younger generation was almost inevitably will know more, understand more. You know, there's, there's a lot of hope that this will that this will almost inevitably lead to progress. But does the advent of Donald Trump, the rise of the far right in Europe, and particularly the whole idea of the post-truth era, um, cast any doubt on these hopes that this sort of progress towards democracy and liberalism is inevitable? Okay. My view on the rise of nationalism in Europe at this stage is the following. There is some objective reasons where we are having the current wave of extremism. One of them, economic crisis, which is really deepening in Europe much more than ever. And the second one as well is the usage of, of, of certain kind of tools, global fear from rising extremism and terrorism and scaring people from the refugees. A lot of tools have been used to create this kind of sense. Now, this is against the trend of history. My feeling is the world is becoming more universal and more global, not less global. Through communications, we are much better connected and we can understand each other much better. With the strong rise of nationalism, we have also strong activism that carries liberal values and defending tolerance and diversity in Europe. And I am really very happy and satisfied with the way that even mainstream media is conducting their business at this moment in time in defending values that, in my opinion, should be defended by media as well. So, yes, I agree with you. This moment is not the most beautiful moment, but I can say this will continue for, for some years. It will fail to deliver the promises of prosperity and peace for the societies that will choose such governments and then people will realize that they have to go back into much more tolerant and much more you know diversified approach rather than extreme nationalism. Sorry, but the end 
Absolutely, yes, because everyone can sit in front of his Twitter account and put whatever story he likes, and I think Trump is doing that. But the issue is the following. Do we have, do we have at this moment in time, journalists and people who are really standing for the truth, who believe in, in verifying, in believing, contextualizing, believe in defending the truth? Yes, they're with you. And we do have much better than before. The same social media that carries the what you call post-truth era is also carrying the opposite, which is how to examine and how to, you know, uh, make sure that what is carried is right. So I do believe, I do believe personally, of the wisdom of the crowd in a way. I do believe that when people have access to knowledge, some people will misuse it and some people will use it perfectly. But eventually, the final re result will go to be positive. I have lived in societies where we were, in a way or another, in a blank situation. You know, we, we, we had some kind of blockade around ourselves, mentally. You don't have access, before the internet, we did not have access to news. We did not have access to proper journalism. And we were suffering from that. And definitely, that environment was much more evil than when our young people are now liberated. They can access, from wherever they are, stories across the world. Their knowledge is much better than our knowledge. And I think with time, they will learn how to choose the right you know, story and how to deal with it, rather than following just any kind of news that comes to them. Thank you. Maybe we can take three more questions. Yeah. In light of the recent rise of the age of terror, what do you think needs to be done in terms of campaigning to young people and teaching them about um, terrorism, as per se? Um, and what more do you think needs to be done? We'll take another question and then we'll come back. Um, thank you, Wada. Um, I wanted to um, question about your, I guess, statement that the Arab Spring became like a murdered, murdered dream. Yesterday, of course, was the sixth anniversary of the Syrian uprising and you talked about that a little bit. But I suppose, I mean, I define myself as having been um, part of the left movement in Australia for some time. Um, yet we have a, I guess we have a situation, I think Al Jazeera is maybe an honourable exception, where much of the media, whether that's mainstream or unfortunately a lot of the left, has portrayed this horrible conflict, well, inspiring revolution and then a horrible um, putting of it down as basically a conflict between jihadi extremists on the one hand and a, you know, regime, maybe we don't like it, but, um, you know, the better of two evils on the other hand. Um, and I think that's frustrating, particularly for many of the Syrian refugees that I know who have tried to keep their voices alive and the original aims of their revolution alive. Um, so I guess, I don't know, wh where do you see the outlet for for those voices who are trying to, you know, steer a path neither neither jihadi nor dictatorship. Mm -hmm. We'll just take more one more question. Hi, I just have a quick question concerning the philosophy of journalism. Uh, so you mentioned a um, well taking a stance and having a mission as a journalist, and I think to some extent you're adopting a moral position. So you mentioned briefly international community as a source of, uh, of liberal ideals such as freedom and also referred to universal ethics. But more, general, more generally, 
Uh, from where could a young journalist derive a moral stance that informs uh, the work that they do, particularly when there are so many competing moral stances in the world? Thank you. So, yeah, I think we'll take the three points. Okay. And, and then you know, we'll just back. to answer the three points, of course, it, it revolves around the following. Our young generation, which I now, wherever they are, regardless if they are Arabs or non-Arabs, are going to confront the following reality. They are living in a globalized world. They need to develop a new mentality for it and the new imagination and the new networking capabilities. Now I, am, I have established something called a Sharp Forum, which is you know, based in the Middle East to encourage concepts of democracy and the freedoms and communication amongst the young people in particular. And I have noticed that this area, when it is in a way just moderated actually, we are not doing much besides allowing people through digital platforms to establish hubs across the world, communicate with each other, exchange experiences. Just in maybe six months, we have at least 20 hubs across the world launched by young people, various cultures, backgrounds, trying to build some kind of support to the concept of democracy and developing sh or sharing experiences. I am really thrilled by that. And we are doing, I mean, that motivates me to speak about the next generation because I am in touch with them. The second point regarding the issue of uh, how we perceive conflicts like the one in Syria. I have no doubt, and I know the facts, and I think you, if you research it, you will know it, that the rise of so-called Al-Qaeda in Syria at that time was actually encouraged by the regime himself. The regime itself wanted the revolution in Syria to appear as if it is a fight between Al-Qaeda and Bashar al-Assad. That the Al-Qaeda fighters were in jail in Syria. In July 2011, they were allowed to escape. In fact, I knew later on from the Prime Minister of Syria, who was under Bashar al-Assad, that year, he told me the story that I have received instructions to release Al-Qaeda prisoners and to allow them access to the north where they can start military operations against the regime. The regime of Iraq allowed people to escape from Abu Ghraib prison. About 1,000 Al-Qaeda operatives were allowed also to cross the borders and to go to Syria. It was very helpful. And all of us have seen this. Not as if, oh, we are surprised. No. I have written tons of articles about this during that period in the Garden and many other places, saying if we do not now try to save the situation in Syria, it is going to be seen as the war between you know, extremists and the regime, and the world will say, oh, you see, if we are in front of two choices between Bashar al-Assad and Al-Qaeda, what can we do? We have to support Bashar al-Assad. This is exactly what Bashar al-Assad did, and he reached that point. You know, so we have, I mean, it was a, like self-fulfilling prophecy, unfortunately. So we need to be aware of the facts. Now, looking forward, five, six years have passed. Extremism has had its peak, no doubt about that. We had ISIS. They controlled a lot of territories. Now they are on retreat. I think people are not convinced. They can't convince people of any project. Why they had that so much popularity during that period? Because the Americans decided not to allow the military groups who are from the Free Syrian Army, who are supposed to be moderate, to receive actually weapons to a large extent. Al-Qaeda had its own way of handling its funding or handling its weapons. So those who wanted to defend their villages, when they go to the free Syrian army, they ask them for help. They tell them, sorry, we can't do any much to you. They go to ISIS or to Al-Qaeda. They tell them, you are most welcome. 
we train you, we give you bills, and we give you $300 a month, for example. Please come work for us. So they did. A lot of people did that, not because they were convinced of what ISIS is doing, because they were in front of a threat that unfortunately has happened to them. Now, with different atmosphere appearing in Syria, international powers are much more you know, active, especially the Turks in northern Syria and what's happening right now with Mosul. I think ISIS will retreat. And a lot of these people who have been joining ISIS for a reason or another are also fleeing away and going back to their communities. So I don't see them producing any continuity. Now the time has come to build the alternative in a proper manner. The world has to learn that we need now to develop proper opposition that is responsible and that has clear way on the way Syria or Iraq is going to be built in the future. If we leave them down again, something else might happen. But now we have spent six years, lost six years actually, of trying to convince the world to do something and to support good elements in Syria. But unfortunately, that was never done. Very, very insightful indeed. Just as a final word, where is a Sharq forum from all that, from media reform, from giving voice to the voiceless, from um, being against conflicts and wars in the Middle East? Just before, I mean, if, because I don't want to ignore uh, your question about professional journal standards. The mission, right. You know, and the mission and the code of ethics. It was actually an exercise for us. When I took over Jazeera 2003, by the end of 2003, we decided to have, you know, I came in, from Afghanistan into Iraq. In Afghanistan, I remember the Afghanis to build a new constitution. They established something called Loya Jirga. If you remember, it was a big tent where the chiefs of the tribe tribes come together and they debate endlessly, you know, a new understanding of a state and then they build something called a constitution, interim constitution and so on. So the concept of Loya Jirga was a beautiful thing because I was attending the Loya Jirga continuously to report the news from Afghanistan. So when I go back to Al Jazeera, literally I brought a tent, I put it in the yard, like just big space like this. And we invited all the people who belonged to Al Jazeera at that time for evenings. Every day after 7 o'clock, everyone is invited to debate and to discuss the following question. What is our purpose? What is our mission? What is our vision? How can we develop our strategies as journalists? And by the end of six months of discussion, it was a beautiful environment because the idea is let everyone feel that he is partner, not as if you have come to tell them what are the professional standards. As the owners, the word owners never existed in Jazeera. We don't have the, the owners would like this to happen. No, all of us own this network. All of us should define our policy. After six months, we came up with a statement for vision, mission, and code of ethics, and code of conduct. And that was published across the world, actually, in Arabic, English, and French. It is on the website, I think, of Al Jazeera until this moment in time. And we chose amongst tens of codes of ethics and the standards of journalism across the world. But I can tell you that 90% of what we have chosen in our declaration was, in fact, universal. You can implement it anywhere in the world. Maybe 10% is related to issues of the Arab world, the concept of diversity and ethnicity, the concept of tolerance. And we concentrated more on that because the concept of democracy, we put a lot of things on democracy because that is a priority for us. Now, a Sharq Forum is following that. <laughs> what I have done after I left Al Jazeera, actually, it was I decided that we would like to do something for the young people in the Arab world. So in the second anniversary of the Tunisia revolution, we launched in Tunisia a Sharq Forum. 
And we brought young people from across the Arab world who have been part of this you know, movement. And we tried to establish debate amongst them or to establish an arena of discussion and dialogue of people who come from Islamic background, secular background, leftist background, to establish what we call like consensus on overarching values for all of us and to give up on the issue of fighting each other based on ideologies and based on partisan belonging. So that's basically the concept of a Sharq Forum, and we continue to do this, and hopefully we will achieve some of our targets. Mr. Waddah Khanfar, the Managing Director of a Sharq Forum and previous manager of Al Jazeera Channel, thank you so much for your yeah, time. Thank you so much.